BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 7 of The Last Trail This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter 7. Westward from Fort Henry, far above the eddying river, Jonathan Zane slowly climbed a narrow, hazel-bordered mountain trail. From time to time he stopped in an open patch along the thickets and breathed deep of the fresh, wood-scented air while his keen gaze slept over the glades nearby, along the wooded hillsides and above at the timber-strewn woodland. This June morning in the wild forest was significant of nature's brightness and joy. Broad-leaved poplars, dense-foliaged oaks, and vine-covered maples shaded cool, mossy banks, while between the trees the sunshine streamed in bright spots. It shone silver on the glancing silver leaf and gold on the colored leaves of the butternut tree. Dewdrops glistened on the ferns. Ripples sparkled in the brooks. Spiderwebs glowed with wondrous rainbow hues. And the flower of the forest, the sweet pale-faced daisy, rose above the green like a white star. Yellowbirds fluttered along the hazel bushes, caroling joyously, and catbirds sang gaily. Robins called, blue jays screeched in the tall white oaks, woodpeckers hammered on the dead hardwoods, and crows cawed overhead. Squirrels chattered everywhere, ruffled grouse rose with great bustle and a whirr, flittering like brown flakes through the leaves. From far above came the shrill cry of a hawk, followed by the wilder scream of an eagle. Wilderness music, such as all this, fell harmoniously on the borderman's ear. It betokened the gladsome spirit of his wild friends, happy in the warm sunshine above or in the cool depth beneath the fluttering leaves, and everywhere in those lonely haunts, unalarmed and free. Familiar to Jonathan almost as the footpath near his home was this winding trail. On the height above was a safe rendezvous, much frequented by him and Wenzel, every lichen-covered stone, mossy bank, noisy brook, and giant oak on the way up this mountainside could have told, had they spoken their secrets, stories of the bordermen, the fragile ferns and slender-bladed grasses peeping from the gray and amber mosses, and the flowers that hung from craggy ledges, and wisdom to impart. A borderman lived under the green treetops, and therefore 
all the nodding branches of sassafras and laurel, the grassy slopes and rocky cliffs, the stately ash-trees, kingly oaks and dark mystic pines, together with the creatures that dwelt among them, save his deadly red-skinned foes he loved. Other affection as close and true as this he had not known. Hearkening thus with single heart to nature's teachings, he learned her secrets. Certain it was, therefore, that the many hours he passed in the woods, apart from savage pursuits, were happy and fruitful. Slowly he pressed up the ascent, at length coming into open light upon a small plateau marked by huge, rugged, weather-chipped stones. On the eastern side was a rocky promontory, and, close to the edge of this cliff, a hundred feet in sheer descent, rose a gnarled, thyme and tempest-twisted chestnut tree. Here the borderman laid down his rifle and knapsack, and half reclining against a tree, settled himself to rest and wait. This craggy point was the lonely watch-tower of eagles. Here on the highest headland for miles around, where the bordermen were wont to meet, the outlook was far-reaching and grand. Below the gray splintered cliffs sheared down to meet the waving treetops, and then hill after hill, slope after slope, waved and rolled far, far down to the green river, open grassy patches, bright little islands in that ocean of dark green shone on the hillsides. The rounded ridges ran straight, curved or zigzag, but shaped their graceful lines in the descent to make the valley. Long, purple-hued, shadowy depressions in the wide expanse of foliage marked deep clefts between ridges where dark, cool streams bounded on to meet the river. Lower, where the land was level, in open spaces could be seen a broad trail, yellow in the sunlight, winding along with the curves of the watercourse. On a swampy meadow, blue in the distance, a herd of buffalo browsed. Beyond the river, high over the green island, Fort Henry lay peaceful and solitary, the only token of the works of man in all that vast panorama. Jonathan Zane was as much as lone as if one thousand miles instead of five intervened between him and the settlement. Loneliness was to him a passion. Other men loved home, the light of woman's eyes, the rattle of dice, or the lust of hoarding, but to him this wild remote promontory with its limitless view stretching away to the dim, hazy horizon, was more than all the aching joys of civilization. Hours here, or in the shady valley, recompensed him for the loss of home comforts, the soft touch of woman's hands, the kiss of baby lips, and also, for all he suffered in the pitiless pursuit, the hard fare, the steel and blood of a borderman's life. Soon the sun shone straight overhead, dwarfing the shadow of the chestnut on the rock. During such a time it was rare that any connected thought came into the borderman's mind. His dark eyes, now strangely luminous, strayed lingeringly over those purple undulating slopes. This intense watchfulness had no object. Neither had his listening. He watched nothing. He hearkened to the silence. Undoubtedly, in this state of rapt absorption, his perceptions were acutely alert, but without thought, as were those of the savage in the valley below, 
or the eagle in the sky above. Yet so perfectly trained were these perceptions, that the least unnatural sound or sight brought him wary and watchful from his dreamy trance. The slight snapping of a twig in the thicket caused him to sit erect and reach out towards his rifle. His eyes moved along the dark openings in the thicket. In another moment a tall figure pressed the bushes apart. Jonathan let fall his rifle and sank back against the tree once more. Wetzel stepped over the rocks toward him. "'Come from Blue Pond?' asked Jonathan as the newcomer took a seat beside him. Wetzel nodded as he carefully laid aside his long black rifle. "'In the engine sign,' continued Jonathan, pushing towards his companion the knapsack of edibles he had brought from the settlement. "'Nary Shawnee track west of this divide,' answered Wetzel, helping himself to bread and cheese. "'Lou, we must go eastward, over Bing Leggett's way, to find the trail of the stolen horses.' likely, and it'll be a long, hard tramp. Who's in Leggett's gang now besides old horse, the Chippewa, and his Shawnee pard Wildfire? I don't know Bing, but I've seen some of his engines, and they remember me. Never seen Leggett but once, replied Wetzel, and that time I shot half his face off. I'd been told by them as have seen him since that he's got a nasty scar on his temple and cheek. He's a big man and knows the woods. I don't know who all's in his gang, nor does anybody. He works in the dark, and for cunning, he's got some on Jim Gertie, Dearin, and several more renegades we know of lying quiet back here in the woods. We never tracked as bad a gang as his'n. They're all experienced woodsmen, old fighters, and desperate, outlawed as they be by Injuns and whites. It wouldn't surprise me to find that it's him and his gang who are running this hoss-thieving, but bad or no, we're going after him. Jonathan told of his movements since he had last seen his companion. And the last Helen is going to help us, said Wetzel, much interested. It's a good move. Women are keen. Betty put Miller's scheming in my eye long afore I noticed it. But girls have chances we men never get. Yes. And she's like Betts, quicker than lightning. She'll find out this hoss-thief in Fort Henry. But, Lou, when we do get him, we won't be much better off. Where do them hosses go? Who's disposing of em for this feller? Where's Brant from? asked Wetzel. Detroit. He's a French-Canadian. Wetzel swung sharply around, his eyes glowing like wakening furnaces. Bing Leggett's a French-Canadian and from Detroit. Metzer was once thick with him down Fort Piney Way, before he murdered a man and became an outlaw. We're on the trail, Jack. Brant and Metzer, with Leggett backing them, and the horses go overland to Detroit. I calculate you hit the mark. What'll we do? asked Jonathan. Wait, that's best. We've no call to hurry. We must know the truth before making a move, and as yet... We're only suspicious. This lass'll find out more in a week than we could in a year. But, Jack, have a care if she don't fall into any snare. Brand ain't any too honest a looking chap. And them renegades is hell for women. The scars you wear prove that well enough. She's a rare, sweet, bloomin' lass, too. I never seen her equal. 
I remember how her eyes flashed when she said she knew I'd avenged Mabel. Jack, their wonderful eyes, and that girl, however sweet and good as she must be, is chain lightning wrapped up in a beautiful form. Aren't the boys at the fort running after her? Like mad, it'd make you laugh to see him, replied Jonathan calmly. There'll be some fights before she's settled for, and maybe art of that. Have a care for her, Jack, and see that she don't catch you. No more danger than for you. I was catched once, replied Wetzel. Jonathan Zane looked up at his companion. Wetzel's head was bowed, but there was no merriment in the serious face exposed to the borderman's scrutiny. Lou, you're joking. Not me. Some day when you're catched good and I have to go back to the lonely trail, as I did afore you and me became friends, maybe then, when I'm the last borderman, I'll tell you. Lou, cordin' the way settlers are comin', in a few more years, there won't be any need for a borderman. When the engines are all gone, where'll be our work? Tain't likely either us'll ever see them times, said Wetzel and I don't want to. Well, Jack, I'm off now, and I'll meet you here every other day." Wetzel shouldered his long rifle, and passed out of sight down the mountainside. Jonathan arose, shook himself as a big dog might have done, and went down into the valley. Only once did he pause in his descent, and that was when a creaking twig warned him some heavy body was moving near. Silently he sank into the bushes bordering the trail. He listened with his ear close to the ground. Presently he heard a noise as of two hard substances striking together. He resumed his walk, having recognized the grating noise of a deer hoof striking a rock. Farther down he espied a pair grazing. The buck ran into the thicket, but the doe eyed him curiously. Less than an hour's rapid walking brought him to the river. Here he plunged into a thicket of willows, and emerged on a sandy strip of shore. He carefully surveyed the river bank, and then pulled a small birch-bark canoe from among the foliage. He launched the frail craft, paddled across the river, and beached it under a reedy, overhanging bank. The distance from this point in a straight line to his destination was only a mile, but a rocky bluff and a ravine necessitated his making a wide detour. While lightly leaping over a brook, his keen eye fell on an imprint in the sandy loam. Instantly he was on his knees. The footprint was small, evidently a woman's, and, what was more unusual, instead of the flat, round moccasin track, it was pointed with a sharp, square heel. Such shoes were not worn by border girls. True, Betty and Nell had them, but they never went into the woods without moccasins. Jonathan's experienced eyes saw that this imprint was not an hour old. He gazed up at the light. The day was growing short. Already shadows lay in the glens. He would not long have light enough to follow the trail, but he hurried on, hoping to find the person who made it before darkness came. He had not traveled many paces before learning that the one who made it was lost. The uncertainty in those hasty steps was as plain to the borderman's eyes as if it had been written in words on the sand. The course led along the brook, avoiding the rough places, and leading into the open glades and glens, but it drew no nearer to the settlement. 
A quarter of an hour of rapid trailing enabled Jonathan to discern a dark figure moving among the trees. Abandoning the trail, he cut across a ridge to head off the lost woman. Stepping out of a sassafras thicket, he came face to face with Helen Shepard. Oh! she cried in alarm, and then the expression of terror gave place to one of extreme relief and gladness. Oh, thank goodness you found me. I'm lost. I reckon, answered Jonathan grimly. The settlement's only five hundred yards over that hill. I was going the wrong way. Oh, suppose you hadn't come, exclaimed Helen, sinking on a log and looking up at him with warm, glad eyes. How did you lose your way? Jonathan asked. He saw neither the warmth in her eyes nor the gladness. Went up the hillside only a little way, after flowers, keeping the fort in sight all the time. Then I saw some lovely violets down a little hill, and thought I might venture. I found such loads of them I forgot everything else. And I must have walked on a little way. On turning to go back, I couldn't find the little hill. I have hunted in vain for the clearing. It seems as if I have been wandering about for hours. I'm so glad you found me. Weren't you told to stay in a settlement inside the clearing? demanded Jonathan. Yes, replied Helen, with her head up. Why didn't you? Because I didn't choose. You ought to have better sense. It seems I hadn't, Helen said quietly, but her eyes belied that calm voice. You're a headstrong child, added Jonathan curtly. Mr. Zane, cried Helen with pale face. I suppose you've always had your own sweet will, but out here on the border you ought to think a little more of others, if not yourself. Helen maintained a proud silence. You might have run right into prowling Shawnees. That dreadful disaster would not have caused you any sorrow, she flashed out. Of course it would. I might have lost my scalp trying to get you back home, said Jonathan, beginning to hesitate. Plainly he did not know what to make of this remarkable young woman. Such a pity to have lost all your fine hair, she answered with a touch of scorn. Jonathan flushed, perhaps for the first time in his life. If there was anything he was proud of, it was his long, glossy hair. "'Miss Helen, I'm a poor hand at words,' he said, with a pale, grave face. "'I was only speaking for your own good.' "'You are exceedingly kind, but need not trouble yourself.' "'Say,' Jonathan hesitated, looking half-vexed at the lovely, angry face. Then an idea occurred to him. Well, I won't trouble. Find your way home yourself. Abruptly she turned and walked slowly away. He had no idea of allowing her to go home alone, but believed it might be well for her to think so. If she did not call him back, he would remain near at hand, and when she showed signs of anxiety or fear, he could go to her. Helen determined she would die in the woods, or be captured by Shawnees, before calling him back. But she watched him. Slowly the tall, strong figure, with its graceful, springy stride, went down the glade. He would be lost to view in a moment, and then she would be alone. How dark it had suddenly become! The gray cloak of twilight was spread over the forest, and in the hollows night already had settled down. A breathless silence pervade the woods. I'm lonely, thought Helen with a shiver. 
Surely it would be dark before she could find the settlement. What hill hid the settlement from view? She did not know, could not remember, which he had pointed out. Suddenly she began to tremble. She had been so frightened before he had found her, and so relieved afterward, and now he was going away. Mr. Zane! she cried with a great effort. Come back! Jonathan kept slowly on. Come back! Jonathan, please! The borderman retraced his trip. Please take me home, she said, lifting her face all flushed, tear-stained, and marked with traces of storm. I was foolish and silly to come into the woods, and so glad to see you. But you spoke to me in a way no one ever used before. I'm sure I deserved it. Please take me home. Papa will be worried. Softer eyes and voice than hers never entreated man. Come, he said gently, and taking her by the hand, he led her up the ridge. Thus they passed through the darkening forest, hand in hand, like a dusky redman and his bride. He helped her over stones and logs, but still held her hand when there was no need of it. She looked up to see him walking, so dark and calm beside her, his eyes ever roving among the trees. Deepest remorse came upon her because of what she had said. There was no sentiment for him in this walk under the dark canopy of the leaves. He realized the responsibility. Any tree might hide a treacherous foe. She would atone for her sarcasm, she promised herself, while walking ever conscious of her hand in his, her bosom heaving the sweet, undeniable emotion which came knocking at her heart. Soon they were out of the thicket, and on the dusty lane. A few moments of rapid walking brought them within sight of the twinkling lights of the village, and a moment later they were at the lane leading to Helen's home. Releasing her hand, she stopped him with a light touch and said, "'Please don't tell Papa or Colonel Zane.' "'Child, I ought. Someone should make you stay at home.' "'I'll stay. Please don't tell. It'll worry Papa.' Jonathan Zane looked down into her great, dark, wonderful eyes with an unaccountable feeling. He really did not hear what she asked. Something about that upturned face brought to his mind a rare and perfect flower, which grew in far-off rocky fastness. The feeling he had was intangible, like no more than a breath of fragrant western wind, faint with tidings of some beautiful field. Promise me you won't tell? Well, lass, have it your own way, replied Jonathan wonderingly, conscious that it was the first pledge ever asked of him by a woman. Thank you. Now we have two secrets, haven't we? She laughed with eyes like stars. Run home now, lass. Be careful hereafter. I do fear for you with such spirit and temper. I'd rather be scalped by Shawnees than have Bing-legged so much as set eyes on you. You would? Why? Her voice was like low, soft music. Why? he mused. It had seemed like a buzzard about to light on a doe. Good night, said Helen. Abruptly and wheeling, she hurried down the lane. End of chapter 7《Chapter Eight of the Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain.
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter 8. Jack, said Colonel Zane to his brother next morning, today is Saturday, and all the men will be in. There was hijinks over at Metzer's place yesterday, and I'm looking for more today. The two fellows Alex Burnett told me about came on day before yesterday's boat. Sure enough, one's a lordly Englishman, and the other the cussedest-looking little chap I ever saw. They started trouble immediately. The Englishman, his name is Mordaunt, hunted up the shepherds, and as near as I can make out from George's story, Helen spoke her mind very plainly. Mordaunt and Case, that's his servant, little cuss, got drunk and raised hell down at Metzer's where they're staying. Rant and Williams are drinking hard, too, which is something unusual for Rant. They got chummy at once with Englishman, who seems to have plenty of gold and is fond of gambling. This Mordaunt is a gentleman, or I never saw one. I feel sorry for him. He appears to be a ruined man. If he lasts a week out here, I'll be surprised. Case looks ugly, as if he were spoiling to cut somebody. I want you to keep your eye peeled. The day may pass off, as many other days of drinking bouts have, without anything serious. And on the other hand, there's liable to be trouble. Jonathan's preparations were characteristic of the borderman. He laid aside his rifle, and, removing his short coat, buckled on a second belt containing a heavier tomahawk and knife than those he had been wearing. Then he put on his hunting frock or shirt, and wore it loose with the belts underneath instead of on the outside. Unfastened, the frock was rather full and gave him the appearance of a man unarmed and careless. Jonathan Zane was not so reckless as to court danger, nor like many frontiersmen, fond of fighting for its own sake. Colonel Zane was commandant of the fort, and in a land where there was no law, tried to maintain semblance of it. For years he had kept thieves, renegades, and outlaws away from his little settlement. By dealing out stern justice, his word was law, and his bordermen executed it as such. Therefore Jonathan and Wetzel made it their duty to have a keen eye on all that was happening. They kept the colonel posted, and never interfered in any case without orders. The morning passed quietly. Jonathan strolled here or loitered there, but saw none of the roisters. He believed they were sleeping off the effects of their orgy on the previous evening. After dinner he smoked his pipe. Betty and Helen passed, and Helen smiled. It struck him suddenly that she had never looked at him in such a way before. There was meaning in that warm, radiant flash. A little sense of vexation, the source of which he did not understand, stirred in him against this girl. But with it came the realization that her white face and big dark eyes had risen before him often since the night before. He wished for the first time that he could understand women better. "'Everything quiet?' asked Colonel Zane, coming out on the steps. "'All quiet,' answered Jonathan. "'They'll open up later, I suspect. I'm going over to Shepherd's for a while, and later we'll drop into Metzer's. I'll make him haul in a yard or two. I don't like things I hear about his selling the youngsters rum. I'd like you to be within call.' The borderman strolled down the bluff and along the path which overhung the river. He disliked Metzer more than his brother suspected, 
and with more weighty reason than that of selling rum to miners, Jonathan threw himself at length on the ground and mused over the situation. We never had any peace in this settlement, and never will in our day. Ebb is hopeful and looks at the bright side, always expecting tomorrow will be different. What have the past sixteen years been? One long, bloody fight, and the next sixteen won't be any better. I make out that we'll have a mix-up soon. Metzer and Brandt, with their allies, whoever they are, will be in it. And if Bing Leggett's in the gang, we've got, as Wetzel said, a long, hard trail, which may be our last. More than that, there'll be trouble about this chain lightning girl. As Wetzel predicted, women make trouble anyways, and when they're winsome and pretty, they cause more. But if they're beautiful and fiery, bent on having their way, as this new lass is, all hell couldn't hold a candle to them. We don't need the Shawnees and Gritties and Hoss Thieves around this here settlement to stir up exciting times. Now we've got this dark-eyed lass, and yet any fool could see she's sweet and good and true as gold. Toward the middle of the afternoon, Jonathan sauntered in the direction of Metzer's Inn. It lay on the front of the bluff, with its main doors looking into the road. A long, one-story log structure with two doors answered as a barroom. The inn proper was a building more pretentious, and it joined the smaller one at its western end. Several horses were hitched outside, and two great oxen yoked to a cumbersome mud-crusted wagon stood patiently by. Jonathan bent his tall head as he entered the noisy barroom. The dingy place reeked with tobacco smoke and the fumes of vile liquor. It was crowded with men. The lawlessness of the time and place was evident. Gaunt, red-faced frontiersmen reeled to and fro across the sawdust floor. Hunters and fur-traders, raftmen and farmers, swelled the motley crew. Young men, honest-faced but flushed and wild with drink, hung over the bar. A group of sullen-visaged, serpent-eyed Indians held one corner. The black-bearded proprietor dealt out the rum. From beyond the barroom, through a door entering upon the back porch, came the rattling of dice. Jonathan crossed the barroom, apparently oblivious to the keen glance Metzer shot at him, and went out upon the porch. This also was crowded, but there was more room because of greater space. At one table sat some pioneers drinking and laughing. At another were three men playing with dice. Colonel Zane, Silas, and Shepard were among the lookers-on at the game. Jonathan joined them, and gazed at the gamesters. Brandt he knew well enough. He had seen that set, wolfish expression in the riverman's face before. He observed, however, that the man had flushed cheeks and trembling hands, indications of hard drinking. The player sitting next to Brandt was Williams, one of the garrison and a good-natured fellow, but garrulous and wickedly disposed when drunk. The remaining player, Jonathan at once saw was the Englishman, Mordaunt. He was a handsome man with fair skin and long, silken, blond mustache. Heavy lines and purple shades under his blue eyes were die unmistakable stance of anticipation. Reckless, dissolute, bad as he looked, there yet clung something favorable about the man. Perhaps it was his cool, devil-may-care way as he pushed over gold piece after gold piece from the fast-diminishing pile before him. His velvet frock and silken doublet had once been elegant, but were now sadly the worse for. 
border roughing. Behind the Englishman's chair, Jonathan saw a short man with a face resembling that of a jackal, the grizzled, stubbly beard, the protruding, vicious mouth, the broad, flat nose, and deep-set, small, glittering eyes, made a bad impression on the observer. This man, Jonathan concluded, was the servant Case, who was so eager with his knife. The borderman made the reflection that, if knife-play was the little man's pastime, he was not likely to go short of sport in that vicinity. Colonel Zane attracted Jonathan's attention at this moment. The pioneers had vacated the other table, and Silas and Shepard now sat by it. The colonel wanted his brother to join them. "'Here, Johnny, bring drinks,' he said to the serving boy. "'Tell Metzer who they're for.' Then, turning to Shepard, he continued, "'He keeps good whiskey, but few of these poor devils ever see it.' At the same time, Colonel Zane pressed his foot upon that of Jonathan's. The borderman understood that the signal was intended to call attention to Brant. The latter had leaned forward as Jonathan passed by to take a seat with his brother, and said something in a low tone to Morant and Case. Jonathan knew by the way the Englishman and his man quickly glanced up at him that he had been the subject of the remark. Suddenly Williams jumped to his feet with an oath. "'I'm cleaned out,' he cried. "'Shall we play alone?' asked Brant of Mordaunt. "'As you like,' replied the Englishman, in a tone which showed he cared not a whit whether he played or not. "'I've got work to do. Let's have some more drinks and play another time,' said Brant. The liquor was served and drank. Brant pocketed his pile of Spanish and English gold and rose to his feet. He was a trifle unsteady, but not drunk. "'Will you gentlemen have a glass with me?' Mordaunt asked of Colonel Zane's party. "'Thank you. Some other time with pleasure. We have our drink now,' Colonel Zane said courteously. Meantime, Brant had been whispering in Case's ear. The little man laughed at something the riverman said. Then he shuffled from behind the table. He was short. His compact build gave promise of unusual strength and agility. "'What are you going to do now?' asked Morant, rising also. He looked hard at Case. Eh, "'Shiver me sides, Captain, if I don't need another drink,' replied the sailor. "'You've had enough. Come upstairs with me,' said Mordaunt. "'Easy with your hatch, Captain,' grinned Case. "'I want to drink with that there engine killer.' I've had drinks with buccaneers and bad men all over the world, and I'm not going to miss this chance. Come on, you will get in trouble. You must not annoy these gentlemen, said Morant. Trouble is the name of my ship, and she's a trim, fast craft, replied the man. His loud voice had put an end to the conversation. Men began to crowd in from the bar room. Metzer himself came to see what had caused the excitement. The old man threw up his cap, whooped, and addressed himself to Jonathan. "'Engine killer! Bad man of the border! Will you drink with a jolly old tar from England?' Suddenly a silence reigned, like that in the depths of the forest. To those who knew the borderman, and few did not know him, the invitation was nothing less than an insult but it did not appear to them as to him like a prearranged plot to provoke a fight. Well, you drink, redskin hunter,' bawled the sailor. "'No,' said Jonathan in his quiet voice. "'Maybe you mean that against old England?' demanded Case fiercely. 
The borderman eyed him steadily, inscrutable as to feeling or intent, and was silent. "'Go out there, and I'll see the color of your insides quicker than I'd take a drink,' hissed the sailor, with his brick-red face distorted and hideous to look upon. He pointed with a long, bladed knife that no one had seen him draw to the green sward beyond the porch. The borderman neither spoke nor relaxed a muscle. "'Oh, oh, my brave pirate of the plains!' cried Case, and he leered with braggart sneer into the faces of Jonathan and his companion. It so happened that Shepard sat nearest to him, and got full effect of the sailor's hot, rum-soaked breath. He arose with a pale face. "'Colonel, I can't stand this,' he said hastily. "'Let's get away from that drunken ruffian.' "'Who's a drunken ruffian?' yelled Case, more angry than ever. "'I'm not drunk, but I'm going to be, and cut some of you white-livered border-mates. Here, you old masthead, drink this to my health, damn you!' The ruffian had seized a tumbler of liquor from the table and held it toward Shepard while he brandished his long knife. White as snow, Shepard backed against the wall, but did not take the drink. The sailor had the floor. No one save him spoke a word. The action had been so rapid that there had hardly been time. Colonel Zane and Silas were as quiet and tense as the bordermen. "'Drink!' hoarsely cried the sailor, advancing his knife toward Shepard's body. When the sharp point all but pressed against the old man, a bright object twinkled through the air. It struck Case's wrist, knocked the knife from his fingers, and, bounding against the wall, fell upon the floor. It was a tomahawk. The borderman sprang over the table like a huge catamount, and with movement equally quick, knocked Case with a crash against the wall, closed on him before he could move a hand, and flung him like a sack of meal over the bluff. The tension relieved. Some of the crowd laughed. Others looked over the embankment to see how Case had fared and others remarked for some reason he had gotten off better than they expected. The borderman remained silent. He leaned against a post with broad breast gently heaving, but his eyes sparkled as they watched Brant, Williams, Morant, and Metzer. The Englishman alone spoke. "'Handily done,' he said, cool and suave. "'Sir, yours is an iron hand. I apologize for this unpleasant affair.' My man is quarrelsome when under the influence of liquor. Metzer, a word with you, cried Colonel Zane curtly. Come inside, Colonel, said the innkeeper, plainly ill at ease. No, listen here. I'll speak to the point. You've got to stop running this kind of a place. No words now. You've got to stop. Understand? You know as well as I, perhaps better, the character of your so-called inn. You'll get but one more chance. "'Well, Colonel, this is a free country,' growled Metzer. "'I can't help these fellers comin' here looking for blood. I runs an honest place. The men want to drink and gamble. What's law here? What can you do?' "'You know me, Metzer,' Colonel Zane said grimly. "'I don't waste words. To hell with law, so you say? I can say that, too. Remember the next drunken boy I see, or shady deal, or gambling spree.' Out you go, for good. Metzer lowered his shaggy head and left the porch. 
Brant and his friends, with serious faces, withdrew into the barroom. The bordermen walked around the corner of the inn and up the lane. The colonel, with Silas and Shepard, followed in more leisurely fashion. At a shout from someone, they turned to see a dusty, bloody figure with ragged clothes stagger up from the bluff. "'There's that blamed sailor now,' said Shepard. "'He's a tough nut. My, what a knock on the head Jonathan gave him. Strikes me, too, that Tomahawk came almost at the right time to save me a whole skin.' "'I was furious, but not all that alarmed,' rejoined Colonel Zane. "'I wondered what made you so quiet. I was waiting.' Jonathan never acts until the right moment, and then, well, you saw him. The little villain deserved killing. I could have shot him with pleasure. Do you know, Shepard, Jonathan's aversion to shedding blood is a singular thing. He'd never kill the worst kind of a white man until driven to it. That's commendable. How about Wetzel? Well, Lou is different, replied Colonel Zane with a shudder. If I told him to take an axe and clean out Metzer's place— God, what a wreck he'd make of it. Maybe I'll have to tell him, and if I do, you'll see something you can never forget. End of chapter 8Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com The Last Trail by Zane Gray, Chapter 9 On Sunday morning under the bright warm sun, the little hamlet of Fort Henry lay peacefully quiet, as if no storms had ever rolled and thundered overhead, no roistering ever disturbed its stillness, and no Indian's yell ever horribly broke the quiet. "'Tis a fine morning!' said Colonel Zane, joining his sister on the porch. Well, how nice you look, all in white for the first time since, well, you do look charming. You're going to church, of course? Yes, I invited Helen and her cousin to go. I have persuaded her to teach my Sunday school class, and I'll take another of older children, replied Betty. That's well. The youngsters don't have much chance to learn out here, but we've made one great stride. A church and a preacher means very much to young people. Next shall come the village school. Helen and I might teach our classes an hour or two every afternoon. It would be a grand thing if you did. Fancy those tots growing up unable to read or write. I hate to think of it. But the Lord knows I've done my best. I've had my troubles in keeping them alive. Helen suggested the day school. She takes the greatest interest in everything and everybody. Her energy is remarkable. She simply must move, must do something. She overflows with kindness and sympathy. Yesterday she cried with happiness when Mabel told her Alex was eager to be married very soon. I tell you, Eb, Helen is a fine character. Yes, good as she is pretty, which is saying some, mused the colonel. I wonder who'll be the lucky fellow to win her. It's hard to say. Not that Englishman, surely. She hates him. Jonathan might. You should see her eyes when he is mentioned. Say, Betts, you don't mean it, eagerly asked her brother. Yes, I do, 
returned Betty, nodding her head positively. I am not easily deceived about those things. Helen is completely fascinated with Jack. She might be only a sixteen-year-old girl, for the way she betrays herself to me. Betty, I have a beautiful plan. No doubt you're full of them. We can do it, Betty, we can, you and I, he said as he squeezed her arm. My dear old matchmaking brother, returned Betty, laughing. It takes two to make a bargain. Jack must be considered. Bosh! exclaimed the colonel, snapping his fingers. You needn't tell me any young man, any man, could resist that glorious girl. Perhaps not, I couldn't, if I were a man. But Jack's not like other people. He'd never realize that she cared for him. Besides, he's a borderman. I know and that's the only serious obstacle. But he could scout around the fort, even if he was married. These long, lonely, terrible journeys taken by him and Wetzel are mostly unnecessary. A sweet wife could soon make him see that. The border will be civilized in a few years, and because of that he'd better give over hunting for Indians. I'd like to see him married and settle down, like all the rest of us, even Isaac. You know, Jack's the last of the Zanes, that is, the old Zanes. The difficulty arising from his extreme modesty and bashfulness can easily be overcome. How most wonderful, brother. Easy as pie. Tell Jack that Helen is dying of love for him, and tell her that Jack loves— But, dear Eb, that latter part is not true, interposed Betty. True, of course it's true, or would be in any man who wasn't as blind as a bat. We'll tell her Jack cares for her, but he is a borderman with stern ideas of duty, and so slow and backward he'd never tell his love even if he had overcome his tricks of ranging. That would settle it with any girl worth her salt, and this one will fetch Jack in ten days or less. Am you're a devil said Betty gaily. And then she added in a more sober vein, Understand, Eb, your idea is prompted by love of Jack, and it's all right. I never see him go out of the clearing, but I think it may be for the last time, even as on that day so long ago when Brother Andrew waved his cap to us and never came back. Jack is the best man in the world, and I, too, want to see him happy with a wife and babies and a settled occupation in life. I think we might weave a pretty little romance. Shall we try? Try, we'll do it. Now, Betts, you explain it to both. You can do it smoother than I. And telling them is really the finest point of our little plot. I'll help the good work along afterwards. You'll be out presently. Nail him at once. Jonathan, all unconscious of the deep-laid scheme to make him happy, soon came out on the porch and stretched his long arms as he breathed freely of the morning air. "'Hello, Jack. Where you bound?' asked Betty, clasping one of his powerful buckskin-clad knees with her arm. "'Reckon I'll go over to the spring,' he replied, patting her dark, glossy head. "'Do you know I want to tell you something, Jack, and it's quite serious,' she said blushing a little at her guilt, but resolute to carry out her part of the plot. "'Well, dear,' he asked as she hesitated, "'do you like Helen?' 
that is a question jonathan replied after a moment never mind tell me she persisted he made no answer well jack she's wildly in love with you the borderman stood very still for several moments then with one step he gained the lawn and turned to confront her what that you say betty trembled a little he spoke so sharply his eyes were bent on her so keenly and he looked so strong so forceful that she was almost afraid but remembering that she had said only what to her mind was absolutely true she raised her eyes and repeated the words helen is wildly in love with you betty you wouldn't joke about such a thing you wouldn't lie to me i know you wouldn't no jack dear she saw his powerful frame tremble even as she had seen more than one man tremble during the siege under the impact of a bullet without speaking he walked rapidly down the path toward the spring colonel zane came out of his hiding place behind the porch and with a face positively electrifying in its glowing pleasure beamed upon his sister gee didn't he stalk off like an indian chief he said chuckling with satisfaction by george betts you must have got in a great piece of work i never in my life saw jack look like that colonel zane sat down by betty's side and laughed softly but heartily we'll fix him all right the lonely hill-climber why he hasn't a ghost of a chance wait until she sees him after hearing your story i tell you betty why damn you're crying he had turned to find her head lowered while she shaded her face with her hand now betty just a little innocent deceit like that what harm he said taking her hand he was as tender as a woman oh em it wasn't that i didn't mind telling him only the flash in his eyes reminded me of of alfred surely it did why not almost everything brings up a tender memory for someone we've loved and lost don't cry betty she laughed a little and raised her face with its dark cheeks flushed and tear-stained i'm silly i suppose but i can't help it i cry at least once every day brace up here come helen and will don't let them see you grieved my helen in pure white too this is a conspiracy to ruin the peace of the masculine portion of fort henry Betty went forward to meet her friends while Colonel Zane continued talking, but now to himself. What a fatal beauty she has! His eyes swept over Helen with the pleasure of an artist, the fair richness of her skin, the perfect lips, the wavy, shiny hair, the wondrous dark blue changing eyes, the tall figure, slender but strong, and swelling with gracious womanhood, made a picture he delighted in and loved to have near him. The girl did not possess for him any of that magnetism, so commonly felt by most of her admirers, but he did feel how subtly full she was of something, which for want of a better term he described in Wetzel's characteristic expression as chain lightning. He reflected that as he was so much older, that she, although always winsome and earnest, showed nothing of the tormenting, bewildering coquetry of her nature. Colonel Zane prided himself on his discernment. 
and he had already observed that Helen had different sides of character for different persons. To Betty, Mabel, Nell, and the children, she was frank, girlish, full of fun, and always lovable. To her elders, quiet and earnestly solicitous to please. To the young men, cold, but with a penetrating mocking promise haunting that coldness, and sometimes sweetly agreeable, often willful, and changeable as April winds. At last the colonel concluded that she needed, as did all other spirited young women, the taming influence of a man whom she loved, a home to care for, and children to soften and temper her spirit. "'Well, young friends, I see you count on keeping the Sabbath,' he said, cheerily. "'For my part, well, I don't see how Jim Duns can preach this morning, before this laurel blossom and that damask rose.' "'How poetical! Which is which?' asked Betty. "'Flatterer!' laughed Helen, shaking her finger. "'And a married man, too,' continued Betty. "'Well, being married has not affected my poetical sentiment, nor impaired my eyesight. "'But it has seriously inconvenienced your old propensity of making love to the girls.' "'Not that you wouldn't if you dared,' replied Betty, with mischief in her eye. "'Now, Will, what do you think of that? Isn't it real sisterly regard?' "'Come, we'll go and look at my thoroughbreds,' said Colonel Zane. "'Where's Jonathan?' Helen asked presently. "'Something happened at Metzger's yesterday. Papa wouldn't tell me, and I didn't want to ask Jonathan.' "'Jack is down by the spring. He spends a great deal of his time there. It's shady and cool, and the water babbles over the stones.' "'How much alone is he?' said Helen. Betty took her former position on the steps but did not raise her eyes while she continued speaking. "'Yes, he's more alone than ever lately, and quieter, too. He hardly ever speaks now. There must be something on his mind more serious than horse-thieves.' "'What?' Helen asked quickly. "'I'd better not tell you.' A long moment passed before Helen spoke. "'Please tell me.' "'Well, Helen, we think, Eb and I, that Jack is in love for the first time in his life, and with you, you adorable creature. But Jack's a borderman. He is stern in his principle, thinks he is wedded to his border life, and he knows that he has both red and white blood on his hands. He'd die before he'd speak of his love, because he cannot understand that would do any good, even if you loved him, which is, of course, preposterous. "'Loves me?' breathed Helen softly. She sat down rather beside Betty, and turned her face away. She still held the young woman's hand, which she squeezed so tightly as to make its owner wince. Betty stole a look at her, and saw the rich red blood mantling her cheeks and her full bosom heave. Helen turned presently with no trace of emotion except a singular brilliance of the eyes. She was so slow to speak again that Colonel Zane and Will returned from the corral before she found her voice. Colonel Zane, please tell me about last night. When Papa came home to supper, he was pale and very nervous. I knew something had happened, but he would not explain, which made me all the more anxious. Won't you please tell me? Colonel Zane glanced again at her, and knew what happened. Despite her self-possession, those tell-tale eyes 
told her secret, ever-changing and shadowing with a bounding and rapturous light. They were indeed the windows of her soul. All the emotion of a woman's heart shone there, fear, beauty, wondering appeal, trembling joy, and timid hope. "'Tell you? Indeed I will,' replied Colonel Zane, softened and a little remorseful under those wonderful eyes. No one liked to tell a story better than Colonel Zane. Briefly and graphically, he related the circumstances of the affair leading to the attack on Helen's father, and, as the tale progressed, he became quite excited, speaking with animated face and forceful gestures. Just as the knife-point touched your father, a swiftly flying object knocked the weapon to the floor. It was Jonathan's tomahawk. What followed was so sudden, I hardly saw it. Like lightning and flexible as steel, Jonathan jumped over the table, smashed Case against the wall, pulled him up, and threw him over the bank. I tell you, Helen, it was a beautiful piece of action, but not, of course, for a woman's eyes. Now that's all. Your father was not even hurt. He saved Papa's life, murmured Helen, standing like a statue. She wheeled suddenly with that swift bird-like motion habitual to her, and went quickly down the path leading to the spring. Jonathan Zane, solitary dreamer of dreams as he was, had never been in as strange and beautiful a reverie as that which possessed him on this Sabbath morning. Deep into his heart had sunk Betty's words, the wonder of it, the sweetness. That alone was all he felt. The glory of this girl had begun, days past, to spread its glamour round him. Swept irresistibly away now, he soared aloft in a dream-castle of fancy, with its painted windows and golden walls. For the first time in his life on the border, he had entered the little glade and had no eye for the crystal water flowing over the pebbles and mossy stones, or the plot of grassy ground enclosed by tall, dark trees and shaded by a canopy of fresh green and azure blue nor did he hear the music of the soft rushing water, the warbling birds, or the gentle sighing breeze moving the leaves. Gone, vanished, lost to-day was that sweet companionship of nature, that indefinable and unutterable spirit which flowed so peacefully to him from his beloved woods, that something more than merely affecting his senses, which existed for him in the stony cliffs, and breathed with life through the lonely aisles of the forest, had fled before the fateful power of a woman's love and beauty. A long time that seemed only a moment passed while he leaned against the stone. A light step sounded on the path. A vision in pure white entered the glade. Two little hands pressed his, and two dark blue eyes of misty beauty shed their light on him. Jonathan, I am come to thank you. Sweet and tremulous, the voice sounded far away. Thank me? For what? To save Papa's life. Oh, how can I thank you? No voice answered for him. I have nothing to give but this. A flower-like face was held up to him, hands light as thistle-down touched his shoulders. Dark blue eyes glowed upon him with all tenderness. May I thank you so soft lips that hissed, full and lingeringly. Then came a rush as of wind, a flash of white, and the patter of flying feet. He was alone in the glade. End of chapter 9
Chapter Ten of the Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter Ten. June passed. July opened with unusually warm weather, and Fort Henry had no visits from Indians or horse thieves, nor any inconvenience except the hot sun. It was the warmest weather for many years, and seriously dwarfed the settlers' growing corn. Nearly all the springs were dry, and a drought menaced the farmers. The weather gave Helen an excuse which she was not slow to adopt. Her pale face and languid air perplexed and worried her father and her friends. She explained to them that the heat affected her disagreeably. Long days had passed since that Sunday morning when she kissed the borderman. What transports of sweet hope and fear were hers then? How shame had scorched her happiness! Yet still she gloried in the act. By that kiss had she awakened to a full consciousness of her love. With insidious stealth and ever-increasing power, this flood had increased to full tide, and bursting its bonds, surged over her with irresistible strength. During the first days after the dawning of her passion, she lived in its sweetness, hearing only melodious sounds chiming in her soul. The hours following that Sunday were like long dreams. But as all things reach fruition, so this girlish period passed. Leaving her a thoughtful woman, she began to gather up the threads of her life where love had broken them, to plan nobly, and to hope and wait. Weeks passed, however, and her lover did not come. Betty told her that Jonathan made flying trips at break of day to hold counsel with Colonel Zane, that he and Wetzel were on the trail of Shawnee with stolen horses, and both bordermen were in their dark, vengeful, terrible moods. In these later days Helen passed through many stages of feeling. After the exalting mood of hot young love came reaction. She fell into the depth of despair. Sorrow paled her face, thinned her cheeks, and lent another shadow, a mournful one. To her great eyes, the constant repression of emotion, the strain of trying to seem cheerful when she was miserable, threatened even her magnificent health. She answered the solicitude of her friends by evasion, and then by that innocent falsehood in which a sensitive soul hides its secrets. Shame was only natural, because since the borderman came not, nor sent her a word, Pride whispered that she wooed him, forgetting modesty. Pride, anger, shame, despair, however, finally fled before affection. She loved this wild borderman, and knew he loved her in return, although he might not understand it himself. His simplicity, his lack of experience with women, his hazardous life and stern duty regarding it, pleaded for him and her love. For the lack of a little understanding, she would never live unhappy, and alone while she was loved. Better give a thousand times more than she had sacrificed. He would return to the village some day, when the Indians and the thieves were run down, and would be his own calm, gentle self. Then she would win him, break down his allegiance to this fearful border life, and make him happy in her love. While Helen was going through one of the fires of life to come out sweeter and purer, if a little pensive and sad, time, which waits not for love, nor life, nor death, 
was hastening onward, and soon the golden fields of grain were stored. September came with its fruitful promise fulfilled. Helen entered once more into the quiet social life of the little settlement, taught her class on Sundays, did all her own work, and even found time to bring a ray of sunshine to more than one sick child's bed. Yet she did not forget her compact with Jonathan, and bent all her intelligence to find some clue that might aid in the capture of the horse-thief. She was still groping in the darkness. She could not, however, banish the belief that the traitor was Brant. She blamed herself for this because of having no good reason for suspicion, but the conviction was there, fixed by intuition. Because a man's eyes were steely gray, sharp like those of a cat's, and capable of the same contraction and enlargement, there was no reason to believe their owner was a criminal. But that Helen acknowledged with a smile was the only argument she had. To be sure, Brant had looked capable of anything. The night Jonathan knocked him down, she knew he had incited Case to begin the trouble at Metzer's, and had seemed worried since that time. He had not left the settlement on short journeys, as had been his custom before the affair in the barroom, and not a horse had disappeared from Fort Henry since that time. Brant had not discontinued his attentions to her. If they were less ardent, it was because she had given him absolutely to understand that she could be his friend only, and she would not have allowed even so much except for Jonathan's plan. She fancied it possible to see behind Brant's courtesy the real subtle threatening man, stripped of his kindness and assumed virtue, the iron man stood revealed, cold, calculating, cruel. Mordaunt she never saw but once, and then, shocking and pitiful, he lay dead drunk in the grass by the side of the road, his pale, weary, handsome face exposed to the pitiless rays of the sun. She ran home, weeping over this wreck of what had once been so fine a gentleman. Ah, the curse of rum! He had learned his soft speech and country bearing in the refinement of a home where a proud mother adored and gentle sisters loved him, and now, far from the kindred he had disgraced, he lay in the road like a log. How it hurt her! She almost wished she could have loved him, if love might have redeemed. She was more kind to her other admirers, more tolerant of Brant, and could forgive the Englishman, because the pangs she had suffered through love had softened her spirit. During this long period the growing friendship of her cousin for Betty had been a source of infinite pleasure to Helen. She hoped and believed a romance would develop between the young widow and Will, and did all in her power, slyly abetted by the matchmaking colonel, to bring the two together. One afternoon, when the sky was clear with that intense blue peculiar to bright days in early autumn, Helen started out toward Betty's, intending to remind that young lady she had promised to hunt for clematis and other fall flowers. About halfway to Betty's home she met Brant. He came swinging round a corner with his quick, firm step. She had not seen him for several days, and somehow he seemed different. A brightness, a flash, as of daring expectation was in his face. The poise, too, of the man had changed. "'Well, I am fortunate. I was just going to your home,' he said cheerily. "'Won't you come for a walk with me?' "'You may walk with me to Betty's,' Helen answered. "'No, not that. Come up the hillside. 
We'll get some goldenrod. I'd like to have a chat with you. I may go away. I mean, I'm thinking of making a short trip, he added hurriedly. Please come. I promise to go to Betty's. You won't come? His voice trembled with mingled disappointment and resentment. No, Helen replied in slight surprise. You have gone with other fellows. Why not with me? He was white now and evidently laboring under powerful feelings that must have had their origin in some thought or plan which hinged on the acceptance of his invitation. "'Because I choose not to,' Helen replied coldly, meeting his glance fully. A dark red flush swelled Brent's face and neck. His gray eyes gleamed balefully with wolfish glare. His teeth were clenched. He breathed hard and trembled with anger. Then, by a powerful effort, he conquered himself. The villainous expression left his face. The storm of rage subsided. Great incentive there must have been for him thus to repress his emotions so quickly. He looked long at her with sinister intent regard. Then, with the laugh of a desperado, a laugh which might have indicated contempt for the failure of his suit, and which was fraught with a word of meaning, of menace, he left her without so much as a salute. Helen pondered over this sudden change, and felt relieved, because she need make no further pretense of friendship. He had shown himself to be what she had instinctively believed. She hurried on toward Betty's, hoping to find Colonel Zane at home, and with Jonathan for Brant's hint of leaving Fort Henry. And his evident chagrin at such a slip of speech had made her suspicious. She was informed by Mrs. Zane that the Colonel had gone to a log-raising. Jonathan had not been in for several days and Betty went away with Will. "'Where'd they go?' asked Helen. "'I'm not sure. I think down to the spring.' Helen followed the familiar path through the grove of oaks into the glade. It was quite deserted. Sitting on the stone against which Jonathan had leaned the day she kissed him, she gave way to tender reflection. Suddenly she was disturbed by the sound of rapid footsteps, and looking up saw the hulking form of Metzer, the innkeeper coming down the path. He carried a bucket, and meant evidently to get water. Helen did not desire to be seen, and thinking he would stay only a moment, slipped into a thicket of willows behind the stone. She could see plainly through the foliage. Metzer came into the glade, peered around in the manner of a man expecting to see someone, and then, filling his bucket at the spring, sat down on the stone. Not a minute elapsed before soft, rapid footsteps sounded in the distance. The bushes parted, disclosing the white set face and gray eyes of Roger Brandt. With a light spring he cleared the brook and approached Metzer. Before speaking he glanced around the glade with the fugitive distressful glance of a man who suspects even the trees. Then satisfied by the scrutiny he opened his hunting frock, taking forth a long object which he thrust towards Metzer. It was an Indian arrow. Metzer's dull gaze traveled from this to the ominous face of Brandt. "'See there, you. Look at this arrow, shot by the best Indian on the border into the window of my room. I hadn't been there a minute when it came from the island. God, but it was a great shot!' "'Hell!' gasped Metzer, his dull face quickening with some awful thought. "'I guess it is hell,' replied Brandt his face growing whiter and wilder. "'Our game's up?' questioned Metzer, with haggard cheek. "'Up, man! 
We haven't a day, maybe less, to shake Fort Henry. What does it mean? asked Metzer. He was the calmer of the two. It's a signal. The Shawnees who were in hiding with the horses over by Blueberry Swamp have been flushed by those bordermen. Some of them have escaped, at least one, for no one but Ashbow could shoot that arrow across the river. Suppose he hadn't come, whispered Metzer hoarsely. Brandt answered him with a dark, shuddering gaze. A twig snapped in the thicket, like foxes at the clip of a trap. These men whirled with fearsome glances. Uh, came a low, guttural voice from the bushes, and an Indian of magnificent proportions and somber, swarthy features entered the glade. End of chapter 10「Chapter Eleven of the Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter Eleven. The savage had just emerged from the river, where his graceful copper-colored body and scanty clothing were dripping with water. He carried a long bow and a quiver of arrows. Brant uttered an exclamation of surprise, and Metzer a curse. As the lithe Indian leaped the brook, he was not young. His swarthy face was lined, seamed, and terrible with dark impassiveness. "'Pale-face, brother, get arrow,' he said in halting English, as his eyes flashed upon Brant. "'Chief, want make sure.' The white man leaned forward, grasped the Indian's arm, and addressed him in an Indian language. This questioning was evidently in regard to his signal, the whereabouts of the others of the party, and why he took such fearful risks almost in the village. The Indian answered with one English word, Deathwind. Brant drew back with drawn white face, while a whistling breath escaped him. I knew it, Metz, Wetzel. He exclaimed in a husky voice. The blood slowly receded from Metzer's evil, murky face, leaving it haggard. Death wind on Chief's trail up Eagle Rock, continued the Indian. Death wind fooled not for long. Chief wait pale-faced brothers at two islands. The Indian stepped into the brook, parted the willows, and was gone as he had come, silently. We know what to expect, said Brandt in calmer tone, as the daring cast of countenance returned to him. There's an Indian for you. He got away, doubled like an old fox on his trail, and ran in here to give us a chance at escape. Now you know why Bing Leggett can't be caught. Let's dig at once, replied Metzer, with no show of returning courage as characterized by his companion. Brent walked to and fro with bent brows. Like one in deep thought, suddenly he turned upon Metzer, eyes which were brightly hard and reckless with resolve. By heaven, I'll do it. Listen. Wetzel has gone to the top of Eagle Mountain, where he and Zane have a rendezvous. Even he won't suspect the cunning of this Indian. Anyway, it'll be after daylight tomorrow before he strikes the trail. I've got twenty-four hours, and more, to get this girl, and I'll do it. Bad move to have weight like her on a march, said Metzer. Bah, the thing's easy. As for you, go on, 
push ahead. After we're started, all I ask is that you stay by me until the time to cut loose. I ain't a-going to crawfish now, growled Metzer. Strikes me, too. I'm losing more'n you. You won't be a loser if you can get back to Detroit with your scalp. I'll pay you in horses and gold. Once we reach Leggett's place, we're safe. What's your plan about getting the gal? asked Metzer. Brandt leaned forward and spoke eagerly, but in a low tone. Get away on horseback? questioned Metzer, visibly brightening. Well, that's some sense. Can ye trust the other party? I'm sure I can, rejoined Brandt. It'll be a good job, a good job, and all done in daylight, too. Bing Lingett couldn't plan better, Metzer said, rubbing his hands. We fooled these Zanes and their fruit-raising farmers for about a year, and our time is about up, Brandt muttered. One more job, and we're done. Once with Leggett, we're safe, and we'll work slowly back towards Detroit. Let's get out of here now, for someone may come at any moment. The plotters separated, Brant going through the grove and Metzer down the path by which he had come. Ellen, trembling with horror of what she had heard, raised herself cautiously from the willows, where she had lain and watched the innkeeper's retreating figure. When it had disappeared, she gave a little gasp of relief, free now to run home there to plan what course must be pursued. She conquered her fear and weakness, and hurried from the glade. Luckily, so far, as she was able to tell, no one saw her return. She resolved that she would be cool, deliberate, clever, worthy of the borderman's confidence. First she tried to determine the purport of this interview between Brandt and Metzer. She recalled to mind all that was said and supplied, what she thought had been suggested. Brandt and Metzer were horse-thieves, aides of Bing Leggett. They had repaired to the glade to plan. The Indian had been a surprise. Wetzel had routed the Shawnees, and was now on the trail of this chieftain. The Indian warned them to leave Fort Henry, and to meet him at a place called Two Islands. Brandt's plan, presumably somewhat changed by the advent of the red man, was to steal horses, abduct a girl in broad daylight, and before tomorrow's sunset escape to join the ruffian Leggett. "'I'm that girl,' murmured Helen shudderingly, as she relapsed momentarily into girlish fears, but at once she rose above selfish feelings. Secondly, while it was easy to determine what the outlaws meant, the wisest course was difficult to conceive. She had promised the borderman to help him, and not speak of anything she learned to anybody himself. She could not be true to him if she asked advice. The point was clear. Either she must remain in the settlement, hoping for Jonathan's return in time to frustrate Brant's villainous scheme, or find the borderman. Suddenly she remembered Metzer's allusion to a second person whom Brant felt certain he could trust. This met another traitor in Fort Henry, another horse-thief, another desperado willing to make off with helpless women. Helen's spirit rose in arms. She had their secret. She could ruin them. She would find the borderman. Wetzel was on the trail at Eagle Rock. What for? Trailing an Indian, who was then five miles east of that rock. Not Wetzel. He was on that track to meet Jonathan. Otherwise, with the redskins near the river, he would have been closer to them. He would meet Jonathan there at sunset today, Helen decided. She paced the room, trying to still her throbbing heart, and trembling hands. I must be calm, she said sternly. Time is precious. 
I have not a moment to lose. I will find him. I've watched that mountain many a time, and can find the trail and the rock. I am in more danger here than out there in the forest. With Wetzel and Jonathan on the mountainside, the Indians have fled it. But what about the savage who warned Brant? Let me think. Yes, he'll avoid the river. He'll go round south of the settlement, and therefore can't see me cross. How fortunate that I have paddled a canoe many times across the river. How glad that I made Colonel Zane describe the course up the mountains. Her resolution fixed, Helen changed her skirt for one of buckskin, putting on leggings and moccasins of the same serviceable material. She filled the pockets of a short, rainproof jacket with biscuits, and, thus equipped, sallied forth with a spirit of exultation she could not subdue. Only one thing she feared, which was that Brant or Metzer might see her cross the river. She launched her canoe and paddled downstream under cover of the bluff to a point opposite the end of the island, then straight across, keeping the island between her and the settlement. Gaining the other shore, Helen pulled the canoe into the willows and mounted the bank. A thicket of willow and alder made progress up the steep incline difficult, but once out of it she faced a long stretch of grassy meadowland. A mile beyond began the green, billowy rise of that mountain she intended to climb. Helen's whole soul was thrown into the adventure. She felt her strong young limbs in accord with her heart. "'Now, Mr. Brandt, horse-thief and girl-snatcher, we'll see,' she said, with scornful lips. "'If I can't beat you now, I'm not fit to be Betty Zane's friend, and I am unworthy of a borderman's trust.' She traversed the whole length of the meadowland close under the shadow of the fringed bank, and gained the forest. Here she hesitated. All was so wild and still. No definite course through the woods seemed to invite, and yet all was open, trees, trees, dark, immovable trees everywhere. The violent trembling of poplar and aspen leaves, when all others were so calm, struck her strangely, and the fearful stillness awed her. Drawing a deep breath, she started forward up the gently rising ground. As she advanced, the open forest became darker, and of wilder aspect. The trees were larger, and closer together. Still, she made fair progress, without deviating from the course she had determined upon. Before her rose a ridge, with a ravine on either side, reaching nearly to the summit of the mountain. Here the underbrush was scanty. The fallen trees had slipped down the side, and the rocks were not so numerous, all of which gave her reason to be proud, so far, of her judgment. Helling, pressing onward and upward, forgot time and danger. While she reveled in the wonder of the forest land, birds and squirrels fled before her, whistling and wheezing of alarm, or heavy crashings in the brushes told of frightened wild beasts. A dull, faint roar, like a distant wind, suggested tumbling waters. A single birch-tree, gleaming white among the black trees, enlivened the gloomy forest. Patches of sunlight brightened the shade. Giant ferns, just tingling with autumn colors, waved tips of sculptured perfection. Most wonderful of all were the colored leaves, as they floated downward with a sad, gentle rustle. Helen was brought to a realization of her hazardous undertaking by a sudden roar of water, and the abrupt termination of the ridge in a deep gorge. Grasping a tree, she leaned over to look down. It was fully a hundred feet deep with impassable walls, green-stained and damp at the bottom of which a brawling brown brook 
rushed on its way, fully twenty feet wide. It presented an insurmountable barrier to further progress in that direction. But Helen looked upon it merely as a difficulty to be overcome. She studied the situation, and decided to go to the left, because higher ground was to be seen that way. Abandoning the ridge, she pressed on, keeping as close to the gorge as she dared, and came presently to a fallen tree lying across the dark cleft. Without a second's hesitation, for she knew which would be fatal, she stepped upon the tree and started across, looking at nothing but the log under her feet, while she tried to imagine herself walking across the water-gate at home in Virginia. She accomplished the venture without a misstep. When safely on the ground, once more she felt her knees tremble, and a queer, light feeling came into her head. She laughed, however, as she rested a moment. It would take more than a gorge to discourage her. She resolved with set lips, as once again she made her way along the rising ground. Perilous, if not desperate, work was ahead of her. Broken, rocky ground, matted thicket, and seemingly impenetrable forest rose darkly in advance, but she was not even tired, and climbed, crawled, twisted, and turned on her way upward. She surmounted a rocky ledge to face a higher ridge covered with splintered, uneven stones, and the fallen trees of many storms. Once she slipped and fell, spraining her wrist. At length this uphill labor began to weary her. To breathe caused a pain in her side, and she was compelled to rest. Already the gray light of coming night shrouded the forest. She was surprised at seeing the trees become indistinct, because the shadows hovered over the thickets, and noted that the dark, dim outline of the ridges was fading into obscurity. She struggled up on the uneven slope with a tightening at her heart, which was not all exhaustion. For the first time she doubted herself, but it was too late. She could not turn back. Suddenly she felt that she was on a smoother, easier course. Not to strike a stone or break a twig seemed unusual. It might be a path worn by deer going to a spring. Then into her troubled mind flashed the joyful thought. She had found a trail. Soft, wiry grass, springing from a wet soil, rose under her feet. A little rill trickled alongside the trail. Mossy, soft-cushioned stones lay embedded here and there. Young maples and hickories grew breast-high on either side and the way wound in and out under the lowering shade of forest monarchs. Swiftly ascending this path, she came at length to a point where it was possible to see some distance ahead. The ascent became hardly noticeable. Then, as she turned a bend of the trail, the light grew brighter and brighter until presently all was open and clear. An oval space covered with stones lay before her. A big, blasted chestnut stood nearby. Beyond was the dim purple haze of distance, above the pale blue sky just faintly rose-tinted by the setting sun. Far to her left the scraggly trees of a low hill were tipped with orange and russet shades. She had reached the summit. Desolate and lonely was this little plateau. Helen felt immeasurably far away from home, yet she could see in the blue distance the glancing river, the dark fort and that cluster of cabins which marked the location of Fort Henry. Sitting upon the roots of the big chestnut tree, she gazed around. There were the remains of a small campfire beyond a hollow under a shelving rock. A bed of dry leaves lay packed in this shelter. Someone had been here, and she doubted 
not that it was the borderman. She was so tired and her wrist pained so severely that she lay back against the tree trunk, closed her eyes, and rested. A weariness, the apathy of utter exhaustion, came over her. She wished the borderman would hurry and come before she went to sleep. Drowsily, she was sinking into slumber when a long, low rumble aroused her. How dark it had suddenly become! A sheet of pale light flared across the overcast heavens. "'A storm!' exclaimed Helen. "'Alone on this mountain top with a storm coming? Am I frightened? I don't believe it. At least I'm safe from that ruffian Brant. Oh, if my borderman would only come!' Helen changed her position from beside the tree to the hollow under the stone. It was high enough to permit of her standing upright, and offered a safe retreat from the storm. The bed of leaves was soft and comfortable. She sat there, peering out at the darkening heavens. All beneath her, southward and westward, was gray twilight. The settlement faded from sight. The river grew wan and shadowy. The ruddy light in the west was fast succumbing to the rolling clouds. Darker and darker it became, until only one break in the overspreading vapors admitted the last crimson gleam of sunshine over hills and valley brightening the river until it resembled a stream of fire. Then the light failed, the glow faded. The intense blackness of night prevailed. Out of the ebon west came presently another flare of light, a quick, spreading flash like a flicker from a monster candle. It was followed by a long, low, rumbling roll. Helen felt in those intervals of utterly vast silence that she must shriek aloud. The thunder was a friend. She prayed for the storm to break. She had withstood danger and toilsome effort with fortitude, but could not brave this awful, boding, wilderness stillness. Flashes of lightning now revealed the rolling, pushing, turbulent clouds, and peals of thunder sounded nearer and louder. A long, swelling moan, sad, low, like the uneasy sigh of the sea, breathed far in the west. It was the wind the ominous warning of the storm. Sheets of light were now mingled with long, straggling ropes of fire, and the rumblings were often broken by louder, quicker detonations. Then a period, longer than usual, of inky blackness succeeded the sharp flaring of light. A faint breeze ruffled the leaves of the thicket and fanned Helen's hot cheek. The moan of the wind became more distinct than louder and in another instant, like the far-off roar of a rushing river, the storm was upon her. Helen shrank closer against the stone, and pulled her jacket tighter around her trembling form. A sudden, intense, dazzling, blinding white light enveloped her. The rocky promontory, the weird giant chestnut tree, the open plateau, and beyond the stormy heavens were all luridly clear in the flash of lightning. She fancied it was possible to see a tall, dark figure emerging from the thicket. As the thunderclap rolled and pealed overhead, she strained her eyes into the blackness, waiting for the next lightning flash. It came with brilliant, dazzling splendor. The whole plateau and thicket were as light as the day. Close by the stone where she lay crept a tall, dark figure of an Indian. With staring eyes she saw the fringed clothing, the long, flying hair, and supple body peculiar to the savage. He was creeping upon her. Helen's blood ran cold. Terror held her voiceless. She felt herself sinking slowly down upon the leaves. 
End of chapter 11「Twelve of the Last Trail」This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com The Last Trail by Zane Gray, Chapter 12 The sun had begun to cast long shadows the afternoon of Helen's hunt for Jonathan, when the borderman accompanied by a wetzel led a string of horses along the base of the very mountain she had ascended. Last night's job was a good un. I ain't against saying, but the redskin I wanted got away, Wetzel said gloomily. He's safe now as a squirrel in a hole. I saw him darting among the trees with his white eagle feather sticking up like a buck's flag, replied Jonathan. He can run, if I'd only had my rifle loaded. But I'm not sure he was that arrow-shooting Shawnee. It was him. I saw his bow. We ought to have taken more time and picked him out, Wetzel replied, shaking his head gravely. Though maybe that had been useless. I think he was hiding. He's precious shy of his red skin. I've been after him these ten year and never catched him napping yet. We'd have done much toward snuffing out Leggett and his gang if we'd winged that Shawnee. He left a plain trail. One of his tricks. He's slicker on a trail than any other engine on the border. Unless maybe it's old Wingenant, the Huron, this Shawnee'd lead us many a mile for nothing, if we'd stick to his trail. I'm long ago used to him. He's doubled like an old fox, run harder than a scared fawn, and if he needs be, he'll lay low as a cunning buck. I calculate once over the mountain, he's made a bee-line east. We'll go on with the hosses, and then strike across country to find his trail. It appears to me, Lou, that we've been taking a long time in making a show against these hoss-thieves," said Jonathan. "'I ain't saying much, but I've felt it,' said Wetzel. "'All summer and nothing done. It was more luck than sense that we run into these engines with the hosses. We only got three out of four and let the best redskin give us the slip. Here fall is nigh on us with winter coming soon, and we still don't know who's the white trader in the settlement.' I said it's be a long and maybe our last trail. Why? Because those fellers, red or white, are in with a picked gang of the best woodsmen as ever outlawed the border. We'll get the Fort Henry hoss thief. I'll back the bright-eyed lass for that. I haven't seen her lately, and allow she left word if she learned anything. Well, maybe it's as well you hain't seen so much of her. In silence they traveled, and, arriving at the edge of the meadow, were about to mount two of the horses when Wetzel said in a sharp tone, "'Look!' He pointed to a small, well-defined moccasin track in the black earth on the margin of a rill. "'Lou, it's a woman. Sure you're born,' declared Jonathan. Wetzel knelt and closely examined the footprint. "'Yes, a woman's, and no engine. "'What?' Jonathan exclaimed as he knelt to scrutinize the imprint. "'This ain't half a day old,' added Wetzel. "'And not a redskin's moccasin near. What do you reckon?' "'A white girl alone,' replied Jonathan, as he followed the trail a short distance along the brook. "'See, she's making upland. Wetzel, these tracks could hardly be my sister's, and there's only one other girl on the border whose feet will match them. Helen Shepherd has passed here, on her way up the mountain to find you or me.' I like your reckoning. 
She's suddenly discovered something. Engines, Hostleaf, the Fort Henry trader, or maybe, and most likely some plottin'. Being bound to secrecy by me, she's not told my brother, and it must be called for hurry. She knows we frequent this mountain top. Said Eb told her about the way we get here. I'd calculate about the same. What'll you do? Go with me after her? asked Jonathan. I'll take the hosses and be at the fort inside an hour. If Helen's gone, I'll tell her father you're close on her trail. Now listen, it'll be dark soon, and a storm's coming. Don't waste time on her trail. Hurry up to the rock. She'll be there if any lass can climb there. If not, come back in the morning. Hunt her trail out and find her. I'm thinking, Jack, we'll find the Shawnee had something to do with this. Whatever happens after I get back to the fort, I'll expect you hard on my trail. Jonathan bounded across the brook. With an easy lope, began the gradual ascent. Soon he came upon a winding path. He ran along this for perhaps a quarter of an hour until it became too steep for rapid traveling, when he settled down to a rapid walk. The forest was already dark. A slight rustling of the leaves beneath his feet was the only sound except at long intervals the distant rumbling of thunder. The mere possibility of Helen's being alone on that mountain seeking him made Jonathan's heart beat as it never had before. For weeks he had avoided her, almost forgot her. He had conquered the strange, yearning weakness which assailed him after that memorable Sunday, and once more the silent, shaded glens, the mystery of the woods, the breath of his wild, free life had claimed him. But now, as this evidence of her spirit, her recklessness, was before him, and he remembered Betty's avowal of pain, which was almost physical, tore at his heart. How terrible it would be if she came to her death through him. He pictured the big, alluring eyes, the perfect lips, the haunting face, cold in death, and he shuddered. The dim gloom of the woods soon darkened into blackness, the flashes of lightning momentarily streaking the foliage, or sweeping overhead in pale yellow sheets aided Jonathan in keeping the trail. He gained the plateau just as a great flash illuminated it, and distinctly saw the dark hollow where he had taken refuge in many a storm, and where he now hoped to find the girl. Picking his way carefully over the sharp loose stones, he at last put his hand on the huge rock. Another blue-white, dazzling flash enveloped the scene. Under the rock he saw a dark form huddled, and a face as white as snow with wide, horrified eyes. Lass, he said, when the thunder had rumbled away, he received no answer and called again. Kneeling, he groped about until touching Helen's dress. He spoke again, but she did not reply. Jonathan crawled under the ledge beside the quiet figure. He touched her hands. They were very cold. Bending over, he was relieved to hear her heart beating. He called her name, but still she made no reply. Dipping his hand into a little rill that ran beside the stone, he bathed her face. Soon she stirred uneasily, moaned, and suddenly sat up. "'Tis Jonathan,' he said quickly. "'Don't be scared.' Another illuminating flare of lightning brightened the plateau. Oh, thank heaven, cried Helen. 
I thought you were an Indian. Helen sank, trembling against the borderman, who enfolded her in his long arms. Her relief and thankfulness were so great that she could not speak. Her hands clasped and unclasped round his strong fingers. Her tears flowed freely. The storm broke with terrific fury. A seething torrent of rain and hail came with the rushing wind. Great heaven-broad sheets of lightning played across the black dome overhead. Zigzag ropes, steel-blue in color, shot downward. Crash and crack and boom, the thunder split and rolled the clouds above. The lightning flashes showed the fall of rain in columns like white waterfalls, borne on the irresistible wind. The grandeur of the storm awed and stilled Helen's emotion. She sat there watching the lightning, listening to the peals of thunder, and thrilling with the wonder of this situation. Gradually the roar abated. The flashes became less frequent. The thunder decreased. As the storm wore out its strength in passing, the wind and rain ceased on the mountaintop almost as quickly as they had begun, and the roar died away in the distance. Far to the eastward, flashes of light illuminated scowling clouds and brightened many a dark, wooded hill and valley. "'Lass, how is it I find you here?' asked Jonathan gravely. With many a pause and broken phrase, Helen told the story of what she had seen and heard at the spring. "'Child, why didn't you go to my brother?' asked Jonathan. "'You don't know what you undertook. I thought of everything.' but I wanted to find you myself. Besides, I was just as safe alone on this mountain as in the village." "'I don't know, but you're right,' replied Jonathan thoughtfully. "'So Brant planned to make off with you tomorrow?' "'Yes. And when I heard it, I wanted to run away from the village.' "'You've done a wondrous clever thing, lass. This Brant is a bad man and hard to match. But if he hasn't shaken Fort Henry by now, his career will end mighty sudden and his bad trail stops short on the hillside, among the graves, for Ebb will always give outlaws or engine decent burial. What will the colonel or anyone think has become of me? Wetzel knows, lass, for he found your trail below. Then he'll tell Papa you came after me? Oh, poor Papa, I forgot him. Shall we stay here till daylight? We'd gain nothing by starting now. The brooks are full, and in the dark we'd make little distance. You're dry here and comfortable. What's more, lass? You're safe. I feel perfectly safe with you, Helen said softly. Aren't you tired, lass? Tired? I'm nearly dead. My feet are cut and bruised, my wrist is sprained, and I ache all over. But, Jonathan, I don't care. I am so happy to have my wild venture turn out successfully. You can lie here and sleep while I keep watch. Jonathan made a move to withdraw his arm, which was still between Helen and the rock, but had dropped from her waist. I am very comfortable. I'll sit here with you, watching for daybreak. My, how dark it is. I cannot see my hand before my eyes. Helen settled herself back into the stone, leaned a very little against his shoulder, and tried to think over her adventure, but her mind refused to entertain any ideas except those of the present. 
Mingled with the dreamy lassitude that grew stronger every moment was a sense of delight in her situation. She was alone on a wild mountain in the night with this borderman, the one she loved. By chance and her own foolhardiness this had come about, yet she was fortunate to have attend to some good beyond her own happiness. All she would suffer from her perilous climb would be aching bones and perhaps a scolding from her father. What she might gain was more than she had dared hope. Breaking up of the horse-thief gang would be a boon to the harassed settlement. How proudly Colonel Zane would smile! Her name would go on that long roll of border honor and heroism. That was not, however, one thousandth part so pleasing as to be alone with her borderman. With a sigh of mingled weariness and content, Helen leaned her head on Jonathan's shoulder and fell asleep. The borderman trembled. The sudden nestling of her head against him, the light caress of her fragrant hair across his cheek, revived a sweet, almost conquered, almost forgotten emotion. He felt an inexplicable thrill vibrate through him. No untrodden, ambushed wild, no perilous trail, no dark and bloody encounter had ever made him feel fear as had the kiss of this maiden. He had sternly silenced faint, unfamiliar, yet tender voices whispering in his heart, and now his rigorous discipline was as if it were not, for at her touch he trembled. Still he did not move away. He knew she had succumbed to weariness and was fast asleep. He could, gently without awaking her, have laid her head upon the pillow of leaves. Indeed, he thought of doing it, but made no effort. A woman's head lying softly against him was a thing novel, strange, wonderful. For all the power he had then, each tumbling lock of her hair might as well have been a chain, linking him fast to the mountain. With the memory of his former yearning, unsatisfied moods, and the unrest and pain his awakening tenderness had caused him, came a determination to look things fairly in the face, to be just in thought towards this innocent, impulsive girl, and be honest with himself. Duty commanded that he resist all charm other than that pertaining to his life in the woods. Years ago he had accepted a borderman's destiny, well content to be recompensed by its untamed freedom from restraint, to be always under the trees he loved so well, to lend his cunning and woodcraft in the pioneer's cause, to haunt the savage trails, to live from day to day a menace to the foes of civilization. That was the life he had chosen. It was all he could ever have. In view of this, justice demanded that he allow no friendship to spring up between himself and this girl. If his sister's belief was really true, if Helen really was interested in him, it must be a romantic infatuation which, not encouraged, would wear itself out. What was he to win the love of any girl? An unlettered borderman who knew only the woods, whose life was hard and cruel, whose hands were red with Indian blood, whose vengeance had not spared men even of his own race. He could not believe she really loved him. Wildly impulsive as girls were at times, she had kissed him. She had been grateful, carried away by a generous feeling for him as the protector of her father. 
when she did not seem for a long time, as he vowed should be the case after he had carried her safely home, she would forget. Then honesty demanded that he probe his own feelings. Sternly, as if judging a renegade, he searched out in his simple way the truth. This big-eyed lass with her nameless charm would bewitch even a borderman unless he avoided her. So much he had not admitted until now. Love he had never believed could be possible for him. When she fell asleep, her hand had slipped from his arm to his fingers, and now rested there lightly as a leaf. The contact was delight. The gentle night breeze blew a tress of her hair across his lips. He trembled. Her rounded shoulder pressed against him until he could feel her slow, deep breathing. He almost held his own breath lest he disturb her rest. No, he was no longer indifferent. As surely as those pale stars blinked far above, he knew the delight of a woman's presence. It moved him to study the emotion as he studied all things, which was the habit of his borderman's life. Did it come from knowledge of her beauty, matchless as that of the mountain laurel? He recalled the dark glance of her challenging eyes, her tall, supple figure and the bewildering excitation and magnetism of her presence. Beauty was wonderful, but not everything. Beauty belonged to her, but she would have been irresistible without it. Was it not because she was a woman? That was the secret. She was a woman with all a woman's charm to bewitch, to twine round the strength of men as the ivy encircles the oak, with all a woman's weakness to pity and to guard with all a woman's willful burning love, and with all a woman's mystery. At last, so much of life was intelligible to him. The renegade committed his worst crimes because even in his outlawed homeless state he could not exist without the companionship, if not the love of a woman. The pioneer's toil and privation were for a woman, and the joy of loving her and living for her the Indian brave, when not on the warpath, walked hand in hand with a dusky, soft-eyed maiden, and sang to her of moonlit lakes and western winds. Even the birds and beasts mated. The robins returned to their old nests, the eagles paired once, and were constant in life and death. The buck followed the doe through the forest. All nature sang that love made life worth living. Love, then, was everything. The borderman sat out the long vigil of the night, watching the stars and trying to decide that love was not for him. If Wetzel had locked a secret within his breast and never in all those years spoke of it to his companion, then surely that companion could as well live without love. Stern, dark, deadly work must stain and blot all tenderness from his life, else it would be unutterably barren. The joy of living, of unharassed freedom, he had always known. If a fair face and dark mournful eyes were to haunt him on every lonely trail, then it were better an Indian should end his existence. The darkest hour before dawn, as well as the darkest of doubt and longing in Jonathan's life, passed away. A gray gloom obscured the pale winking stars. The east slowly whitened, then brightened and at length day broke, misty and fresh. The borderman rose to stretch his cramped limbs. 
When he turned to the little cavern, the girl's eyes were wide open. All the darkness, the shadow, the beauty, and the thought of the past night lay in their blue depths. He looked away across the valley, where the sky was reddening, and a pale rim of gold appeared above the hilltops. "'Well, if I haven't been asleep!' exclaimed Helen, with a low, soft laugh. "'You're rested, I hope,' said Jonathan, with averted eyes. He dared not look at her. "'Oh, yes, indeed. I am ready to start at once. How gray, how beautiful the morning is! Shall we be long?' I hope Papa knows. In silence, the borderman led the way across the rocky plateau and into the winding, narrow trail. His pale, slightly drawn and stern face did not invite conversation. Therefore, Helen followed silently in his footsteps. The way was steep, and at times he was forced to lend her aid. She put her hand in his and jumped lightly as a fawn. Presently, a brawling brook overcrowding its banks impeded further progress. "'I'll have to carry you across,' said Jonathan. "'I'm very heavy,' replied Helen, with a smile in her eyes. She flushed as the borderman put his right arm around her waist. Then a clasp as of steel enclosed her. She felt herself swinging easily into the air and over the muddy brook. Further down the mountain, this troublesome brook again crossed the trail this time much wider and more formidable. Helen looked with some vexation and embarrassment into the borderman's face. It was always the same, stern, almost cold. "'Perhaps I'd better wade,' she said hesitantly. "'Why, the water's deep and cold. You'd better not get wet.' Helen flushed, but did not answer. With downcast eyes she let herself be carried on his powerful arm. The waiting was difficult this time. The water foamed furiously around his knees. Once he slipped on a stone and nearly lost his balance. Uttering a little scream, Helen grasped at him wildly, and her arm encircled his neck. What was still more trying, when he put her on her feet again, it was found that her hair had become entangled in the porcupine quills on his hunting coat. She stood before him while, with clumsy fingers, he endeavored to untangle the shimmering strands in vain. Helen unwound the snarl of wavy hair. Most alluring she was then, with a certain softness on her face, and light and laughter, and something warm in her eyes. The borderman felt that he breathed a subtle exhilaration, which emanated from her glowing, gracious beauty. She radiated with the gladness of life, with an uncontrollable sweetness and joy, but giving no token of his feeling he turned to march on down through the woods. From this point the trail broadened, descending at an easier angle. Jonathan's stride lengthened until Helen was forced to walk rapidly and sometimes run in order to keep close behind him. A quick journey home was expedient, and in order to accomplish this she would gladly have exerted herself to a greater extent. When they reached the end of the trail where the forest opened clear of brush, finally to merge into the broad, verdant plain, the sun had chased the mist clouds from the eastern hilltops and was gloriously brightening the valley. With a touch of sentiment natural to her, Helen gazed backward for one more view of the mountain top, the wall of rugged rock she had so often admired from her window at home, which henceforth would ever hold a tender place of remembrance in her heart, rose out of a gray-blue bank of mist. The long, swelling slope lay clear to the sunshine, 
with the rays of sun gleaming and glistening upon the variegated foliage, and upon the shiny rolling haze above, a beautiful picture of autumn splendor was before her. Tall pines here and there towered high and lonely over the surrounding trees. Their dark green graceful heads stood in bold relief above the gold and yellow crests beneath. Maples tinged from faintest pink to deepest rose added warm color to the scene, and chestnuts with their brown-white burrs lent fresher beauty to the undulating slope. The remaining distance to the settlement was short. Jonathan spoke only once to Helen, then questioning her as to where she had left her canoe. They traversed the meadow, found the boat in a thicket of willows, and were soon under the frowning bluff of Fort Henry. Ascending the steep path, they followed the road leading to Colonel Zane's cabin. A crowd of boys, men, and women loitering near the bluff arrested Helen's attention. Struck by this unusual occurrence, she wondered what was the cause of such idleness among the busy pioneer people. They were standing in little groups. Some made vehement gestures, others conversed earnestly, and yet more were silent. On seeing Jonathan, a number shouted and pointed toward the inn. The bordermen hurried Helen along the path, giving no heed to the throng. But Helen had seen the cause of all this excitement. At first glance she thought Metzer's inn had been burned, but a second later it could be seen that the smoke came from a smoldering heap of rubbish in the road. The inn, nevertheless, had been wrecked. Windows stared with that vacantness peculiar to deserted houses. The doors were broken from their hinges. A pile of furniture, rude tables, chairs, beds, and other articles were heaped beside the smoking rubbish. Scattered around lay barrels and kegs, all with gaping sides and broken heads. Liquor had stained the road, where it had been soaked up by the thirsty dust. Upon a shattered cellar door lay a figure, covered with a piece of rag carpet. When Helen's quick eyes took in this last, she turned away in horror. That motionless form might be Brant's. Remorse and womanly sympathy surged over her, for bad as the man had shown himself, he had loved her. She followed the borderman, trying to compose herself. As they neared Colonel Zane's cabin, she saw her father, Will, the Colonel, Betty, Nell, Mrs. Zane, Silas Zane, and others whom she did not recognize. They were all looking at her. Helen's throat swelled and her eyes filled when she got near enough to see her father's haggard, eager face. The others were grave. She wondered guiltily if she had done much wrong. In another moment she was among them. Tears fell as her father extended his trembling hands to clasp her, and as she hid her burning face in his breast, he cried, My dear, dear child. Then Betty gave her a great hug, and Nell flew about them like a happy bird. Colonel Zane's face was pale and wore a clouded, stern expression. She smiled timidly at him through her tears. Well, 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 he mused, while his gaze softened. That was all he said, but he took her hand and held it while he turned to Jonathan. The borderman leaned on his long rifle, regarding him with expectant eyes. Well, Jack, you missed a little scrimmage this morning. Wetzel got in at daybreak. The storm and horses held him up on the other side of the river until daylight. He told me of your suspicions with the additional news that he'd found a fresh Indian trail on the island just across from the inn. 
We went down, not expecting to find anyone awake. But Metzer was hurriedly packing some of his traps. Half a dozen men were there, having probably stayed all night. That little English cuss was one of them, and another, an ugly fellow, a stranger to us, but evidently a woodsman. Things looked bad. Metzer told a decidedly conflicting story. Wetzel and I went outside to talk over the situation, with the result that I ordered him to clean out the place. Here Colonel Zane paused to indulge in a grim, meaning laugh. Oh, well, he cleaned out the place all right. The ugly stranger got rattlesnake mad and yanked out a big knife. Sam is hitching up the team now to haul what's left of him up on the hillside. Metzer resisted arrest and got badly hurt. He's in the guardhouse. Case, who has been drunk for a week, got in Wetzel's way and was kicked into the middle of next week. He's been spitting blood for the last hour, but I guess he's not much hurt. Brant flew the coop last night. Wetzel found this hid in his room. Colonel Zane took a long feathered arrow from where it lay on a bench and held it out to Jonathan. The Shawnee signal. Wetzel had it right, muttered the borderman. Exactly. Lou found where the arrow stuck in the wall of Brant's room. It was shot from the island at the exact spot where Lou came to an end of the Indian's trail in the water. That Shawnee got away from us. So Lou said. Well, he's gone now. So has Brandt. We're rid of the gang. If only we never hear from them again. The borderman shook his head. During the colonel's recital his face changed. The dark eyes had become deadly. The square jaw was shut. The lines of the cheek had grown tense, and over his usually expressive countenance had settled a chill, lowering shade. Lou thinks Brant's in with Bing Legged. Well, dang his black traitor heart. He's a good man for the worst and strongest gang that ever tracked the border. The borderman was silent, but the fugitive, restless shifting of his eyes over the river and island, hill and valley, spoke more plainly than words. You're to take his trail at once, added Colonel Zane. I had best put you up some bread, meat, and parched corn. No doubt you'll have a long, hard tramp. Good luck. The borderman went into the cabin, presently emerging with a buckskin knapsack strapped to his shoulder. He set off eastward with a long, swinging stride. The women had taken Helen within the house, where no doubt they could discuss with greater freedom the events of the previous day. "'Shepherd,' said Colonel Zane, turning with a sparkle in his eyes, "'Brant was after Helen, sure as bad weed grows fast, and certain as death, Jonathan and Wetzel will see him cold and quiet back in the woods.' "'That's a border saying, and it means a good deal.' I never saw Wetzel so implacable, nor Jonathan so fatally cold, but once. And that was when Miller, another traitor much like Brant, tried to make away with Betty. It would have chilled your blood to see Wetzel go at that fool this morning. Why did he want to pull a knife on the borderman? It was a sad sight. Well, these things are justifiable. We must protect ourselves, and above all our women. We've had bad men, and a bad man out here is something you cannot yet appreciate. Come here and slip into the life of the settlement. Because on the border, 
you can never tell what a man is until he proves himself. There have been scores of criminals spread over the frontier, and some better men like Simon Gertie, who were driven to outlaw life. Simon must not be confounded with Jim Gertie, absolutely the most fiendish desperado who ever lived. Why, even the Indians feared Jim so much that after his death his skeleton remained unmolested in the glade where he was killed. The place is believed to be haunted now by all Indians and many white hunters, and I believe the bones stand there yet. Stand? asked Shepard, deeply interested. Yes, it stands where Gertie stood and died, upright against a tree, pinned, pinned there by a big knife. Heavens, man, who did it? Shepard cried in horror. Again Colonel Zane's laugh, almost metallic, broke grimly from his lips. <laughs> who? Why, Wetzel, of course. Lou hunted Jim Gertie five long years. When he caught him? God, I'll tell you some other time. Jonathan saw Wetzel handle Jim and his pal, Deering, as they were mere boys. Well, as I said, the border has had, and still has, its bad men. Simon Gertie took McKee and Elliot, the Tories, from Fort Pitt, when he deserted, and ten men beside. They're all, except those who are dead, outlaws of the worst type. The other bad men drifted out here from Lord only knows where. They're scattered all over. Simon Gertie, since his crowning black deed, the massacre of the Christian Indians, is in hiding. Bing Leggett now has the field. He's a hard nut, a cunning woodsman. And capable leader who surrounds himself with only the most desperate Indians and renegades. Brant is an agent of Leggett's, and I'll bet we'll hear from him again. End of chapter 12「Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc